Hello everyone, welcome to Millennium Live. My name is Katie Perry and today I have a very fun and special guest who I am very excited to talk to today. We have David Schweidel who is a professor of marketing at Emory University and he has been a thought leader with us for a couple months now. David, thank you so much for joining us. I know you joined us virtually in August at our virtual CMO event, and you were the moderator for our keynote panel. So that was a wonderful conversation. And for anyone who has not heard it, you can go onto our podcast and listen to it. But I haven't even given David the moment to say hello. So David, please say hello. I apologize. I could go on and on about David. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. So I want to jump in immediately and talk about the research that you're doing through social media. So part of the reason I really wanted David to be on this podcast today is because the research that he is doing is so relevant and so current in our virtual world for not only this pandemic, but just in general, everyone being somewhat involved in social media. So let's dive into that. And I know, you know, I think as a general generalization, we can say that most people have some form of social media in some capacity. So can you just first off explain why you wanted to study the aspects of social media and the results that you have found? So I got into social media by accident. It was hey, here's a new source of data that's becoming available. This was back in 2010, 2011, when user-generated content was just becoming available. We had things like product reviews. And yeah, I I tend to follow the data in in, in my research. And social media, because of the dynamics that are in play in terms of people interacting with each other, people interacting with businesses, and really now consumers having the opportunity to kind of take ownership of the conversation, it's changed how marketing operates. It used to be, I do television advertising, I put up billboards, I do magazine ads, and that's the conversation about the brand. Now, consumers through social media can not only participate in the conversation, but we've also seen cases where they take over the conversation. And so the more recent work that that I started to do, uh, you know, came out of just kind of, you know, water cooler type conversation with one of my colleagues, Morgan Ward, and we both have uh, young daughters at home. And we're talking about some of what we had seen in terms of children on social media, potential ramifications of social media, uh, on children. And yeah, it reminded me a little bit of the Dove Real Beauty campaigns. Hmm. Yeah, if we go back, this was, I want to say mid 2000s, maybe around 2010, when Dove launched the Real Beauty campaign. And I had seen a more recent version of that, um, that Dove had produced called the reverse selfie. And it showed a teenager posting to social media photos that were you know, clearly um, enhanced. But what they did in the video, which I thought was really clever, was to say, let's play this backwards in ter- to show you everything that goes into kind of that perfect selfie. You know, as you kind of rewind that, you know, the actual person bears no resemblance to the person that's depicted in the photo. 
Yeah, as we start thinking about the role that influencers play and brands wanting to partner with influencers, influencers really becoming their own economy, if you think of it in terms of they partner with the brands in terms of delivering consumers to the brand, but they also need to sell themselves to the brand. And so we started to kind of talk about what influencers are doing and what makes them attractive to brands but also what are the implications of what they're doing to the consumers who are being exposed to their content? Now you're talking about influencers and of course, or anyone who's listening in, and I assume you all know what influencers are, but it's someone on social media who is putting out some type of product, or you can even say service that people are following and want to be a part of. But There are micro and macro influencers, you know, people who have a couple of thousand followers, and then there's the people that have millions. So have you found any difference in emotional responses or people's thought processes between the different influencers? Yeah, that's where I think the research really gets interesting because part of what makes an influencer effective is their relatability. If we think about... uh, yeah, uh, the botched fire festival. So this was the oh my goodness <laughs> the music festival that was supposed to be you know be the best of all music festivals ever, which turned out to have been a giant con. Right. And as part of the promotions for that, there were influencers. It was I believe celebrities and models who were promoting this festival on social media, and they were actually named in the lawsuit of the people who were defrauded because they didn't disclose their financial relationship with the festival. And so the reason why marketers have started to use influencers is because of their authenticity, because it's believed, and in many cases true, that these influencers have a closer relationship with their followers, as opposed to the Chrissy Teigen's, the Kim Kardashian, that are kind of the these celebrities that we see as kind of somewhat off in the distance, not really like us. So, exactly. you, you know, your macro influencers being more like your celebrities who aren't like us versus your micro influencers where we have this perception that they're more relatable to us. And it's that relatability that we're seeing is actually what can cause some of the harm when they engage in um, digital manipulation of their own photos. Um, So what we've seen is when micro-influencers digitally enhance their photos through image manipulation, you're more likely to share those photos. You're more likely to engage with that person, but it actually creates more negative feelings than when a celebrity, a macro influencer were to take the same tactic. And as we've unpacked that again, it's, it's due to that relatability, right? The more I can relate to the person, I expect that I'm supposed to be like that person or that I should be able to be like that person. But then we see, you know, they've got the perfect hair, their skin is flawless. Maybe their lips are bigger or their nose is different or their eyes are bigger. You know, all of these things that, you know, we can now, you know, Photoshop or Facetune that we might not think anything about, but it creates more envy. It creates more negative emotions uh, when we're exposed to that that content. Now, contrast that with your macro celebrities, your, your macro influencers, who we have no expectation of being like them. So when they do it, it's kind of like, well, we expect that. 
And so we don't try to compare our lives to their lives. You know, I think of it a little bit like, you know, if you get the Christmas cards from people, it's like, oh, here's the, the perfect family photo. And then, I, you know, there's the meme that goes around on Facebook at holiday time. Here's the perfect family photo. Here's what actually went into it. Or here's how chaotic the family really is. And we, yeah, we choose to share that picture perfect image rather than reality. Right. And what we're seeing is there are, so, there are psychological consequences for consumers of kind of engaging in that, almost that expectation of that picture perfect reality. Absolutely. You don't see the screaming kid in the background or the brother and sister fighting, but it, it you know, surface level that makes a lot of sense. I don't think I've ever sat and compared myself to a Kardashian because my life isn't even close to the same as them, but it is easy to try to look at an influencer who maybe has, you know, 10,000 followers, has a very similar lifestyle, and then you realize that the image is so edited because a lot of them will often put side-by-sides, which I think is very interesting. You know, every couple months they'll do a side-by-side, but then continue on with these images that are completely edited. Absolutely. And and we're seeing some response from governments in this regard. Um, In Europe, I believe it was Norway that just passed a bill that if you manipulate the image so much, you have to disclose. And if it's manipulated to the point that it no longer conforms to healthy body standards. Oh, wow. I believe that's the threshold that they've set for when you must disclose the image manipulation. Um, I think France has a law on the books around image manipulation and the it was proposed in the UK. So we're seeing a lot of countries recognizing kind of the threat that this poses. And we heard about it recently in the congressional testimony from the Facebook whistleblower yes. about that it's known that this affects teenagers, particularly female teenagers. But what we're seeing, you know, none of our participants in our studies well, I guess teenagers, we had some college students that uh, participated in, but these are people in their 20s that are participating in these studies, and we're still seeing that negative impact um, on their emotional well-being. Absolutely. So I know you're mentioning the government's perspective and maybe coming in and trying to intervene, but has this become a concern for the social media companies? You know, it was briefly talked about with Facebook, but do you think there will be any changes in the actual companies themselves? Yeah, this is where, this is where it's going to get interesting because let's try to unpack that that Facebook, which is Instagram and WhatsApp, you know, all under one massive umbrella, they are not a public benefit company, right? They are a for profit company. Their responsibility is to their shareholders, and so what is good for business? Well, what's good for business is any type of content that is going to keep people on the platform and coming back to the platform so that I can serve more ads to them, right? Because at the end of the day, what's paying for social media, at least as we know it of it, so what we know of so, as social media today is advertisers, right? We pay with our attention, advertisers pay with their dollars. And so unless there is a significant outcry from consumers to say, I'm not going to use this platform unless they do A, B, and C, or I'm going to, you know, because what is the alternative to Facebook and Instagram, right? We got to experience recently, you know, now whether or not it was coincidental is a separate conversation, but we got to experience a day 
with no Facebook, with no Instagram. <laughs> we did. <laughs> and just my casual conversations with people, they were like, well, I have all this time back. What do I do? Yes. Right? I so, think a lot of people panicked. <laughs> right? and, that, and that just shows how ingrained this technology has become in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, unless something dramatically changes in terms of how that business operates how and you know take social media as a whole not just facebook but you know twitter uh even yeah maybe you know linkedin falls under that umbrella they are in the business of generating a profit and so what what generates a profit for them is people being engaged on the platform right Right. well the content that people choose to engage with that's what they're going to put in front of us and so this is where i mentioned kind of the influencers becoming their own economy you know, right now, what we choose to respond to, what we as consumers like, is that picture-perfect image. And that's somewhat scary. I mean, I guess that leads me into my next question. I know that your research is current and it's only been going on for a short amount of time, but do you have any predictions of what really may happen with the long-term effects of these people taking in these influencers' pictures, maybe either on their mental health or just living their lives? Yeah, there was one study that I believe the NIH had started to conduct is a kind of long-term study on social media use. And they did not find any impact on high versus low social media use on out, the outcomes that they measured. Now, I, that's a ho- hopeful sign. I haven't had a chance to kind of unpack the results of that myself, but they're lumping all social media use together. And that, and so I, I almost say, let's take that with a grain of salt, uh, that we don't know if, you know if you're shopping on social media versus consuming the news versus immersed in celebrity culture. You know, what, it's all very different. It, it's all very different types of consumption. You know, I will say, I think there's, there needs to be more attention paid to it. And hopefully the conversation around what Facebook knew when in terms of the impact on society is something that's going to get government attention um, more deeply than it has before. I mean, we saw, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg last testified before Congress, Congress really didn't know what it was talking about. My personal prediction, I think that there will need to be a separate regulatory body created, just like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was created that, you know, the challenge with technology is technology changes so quickly that it's very difficult to regulate. Yeah. And And, so I- And to keep up with. Exactly. And so in order, you know, government moves at a snail's pace when it's functioning at its best. Uh, And I don't think we're there. Yeah. I would not say that our government in the U.S. is currently functioning at its best. So what hope (laughs) does it have of reigning in uh, Silicon Valley. Right. But I mean, there's reason for us to, to be concerned uh, f- from a number of dimensions. There's the mental health dimension of what is social media do- doing to us. And yeah, we're ho- I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, the fact that we find that so- the celebrities not kind of photoshopping themselves doesn't matter, that might be part of the solution is to say that, you know, if we start to see the macro influencers get on board with this movement away from 
kind of the ideal image, maybe something like that is what's necessary to change the consumer mindset. And then it ultimately trickles down to the micro influencer. Right. Well, that would be nice. That sounds like wishful thinking, but. <laughs> and again, I go back to kind of what are the economics for the individual, right? Kim Kardashian's going to get hundreds of thousands of dollars for a single social media post, regardless of whether or not she photoshops it. You're so right. there's no there's no incentive for her to Photoshop it, right? And we've started to see some celebrities actually choose to do this strategically to kind of build that relationship and give consumers a little bit more in with them to say, hey, this is what my life really looks like. Absolutely. So it might be in their interest to actually say, hey, I don't need to be manipulating my image. People are going to pay me regardless. And I might actually attract more people by not manipulating the images. So it's, right. I, I wouldn't rule it out as a possibility. I think it's wishful. I think it is a little bit of wishful thinking. I'll, yeah, that's fair. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the mental health is just one aspect of why we need to be paying attention to social media. There was a Pew uh, Center report that social media is the primary way that people get their news for a significant chunk of the population. Um, you know, it skews younger. Uh, but, you know, that'll, over time, that becomes the modal way that we get our news. Yeah. Uh, and so truth versus you know, misinformation, how do we distinguish between the two? And what is in the best, what is in the best interest of the social media platforms? You know, one of the things we're looking at right now is, is it even possible to curb the spread of misinformation without adversely affecting the economics for a social media platform? I don't, I don't know. I hope the answer is yes. But again, that might be wishful thinking on my part. So that's something that we're working on um, to see if there are different ways of kind of, you know, taking different approaches to saying, how do I stop the spread of misinformation? Do I kick people off my platform? Do I just limit the reach of the content that they're putting out? Do I need to, you know, do I involve fact checkers in this? Do I remove specific pieces of content? So we're going to explore different mechanisms that they might be able to use and then see what does that do to uh, business performance? Right. Well, maybe that's also part of the problem that there's so many possible answers or solutions to this that it's not black and white. It's very gray. And, you know, one person can't just come in and say, this is what we're all doing and this is how it's going to work. Unless you're Mark Zuckerberg, who has, <laughs> you know, controlling interest in the, the main <laughs> social media company. Yeah, unless you're Mark Zuckerberg. And we all know he's not coming in and saying it because, like you said, it's about profit. Yeah, until that changes, until we either have a viable alternative to using Facebook, in which case the consumers can enact it, can force the change, because Facebook will do what its consumers want at the end of the day. Like if consumers in mass leave the platform because they're not doing something that the consumers want, that will force a change. But as that one day without social media showed us, it's just so embedded that I don't think we have a real alternative right now. Well, maybe one day we will. But I do want to slightly switch gears a little. And I want to talk about some other research that you've been doing and something you actually have created. So I know that you are very interested in AI when it comes to marketing. And you recently developed a tool to create some SEO content. Can you just give us some background on this? Explain sure. it. 
So this was a you know pre-COVID. I had gone over to uh, Austria and given a talk at a university there, and was talking with the faculty with a faculty member and one of his doctoral students about a project that they were doing. And at the time, they hadn't gotten the project off the ground yet. It was still in the early stages. I'm like, well, this sounds really cool if you can actually pull it off, but I'm incredibly skeptical that you can actually pull it off. Um, but they said, okay, well, they, they invited me to join the project. I'm like, all right, well, sure, why not? This sounds like fun. Uh, and the idea behind it is that we leverage these very massive, large-scale, uh, large um, pre-trained language models. So some of you, the listeners may have heard of GPT-2 or GPT-3. Um, these are language models that have been built by a company called OpenAI. It's an Elon Musk-backed company that Microsoft has made a huge investment in. Um, but what they do is they basically compile massive quantities of digital text. So could include Wikipedia, it could include blogs, it could include patents, uh, really kind of scouring the web to assemble this corpus of text. And they, have trained the model to essentially be able to create language like it, it that it's at the point now where if I were to present you with the text that had been created you may not be able to distinguish between the text that came out of a machine and whether or not a human being had actually written it wow so it's really impressive what they had done and it's a significant investment to build these models I mean we're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in order to build this model. Now, the cool part about what the, what the, group, the um, company did with GPT-2 um, and to a lesser extent with GPT-3 was they said, we're gonna make this available to the broader community, the broader world to be able to use. And so what we did was we took the open source GPT-2 and we implemented a process called fine tuning. So the problem with these massive language models is they're trained on such a, a variety of text, they're not well suited for any specific application. You know, if you wanted to write content for a blog, you know, I could generate text on, let's say, what's going to happen in marketing next year. Right? And it would generate content based on what's what it has seen, the phrase marketing, next year, predictions, it's going to generate text based on that. Well, it may not be in the form that is what you would see on a blog or a social media post or an advertisement or print copy, because it's just drawing on all of the text that it has. The phrase that I, that I like to describe these models is a stochastic parrot. Mm -hmm. Right, it's really good at regurgitating um, or merging the text that it's already seen before and spitting it out in a new way. All right, so if you wanted to use this for SEO purposes, it might work, but it might not have the keyword density that's that is appropriate. It might not have some of the other characteristics that are appropriate that would get you to have a successful piece of SEO content. So what we did was we said, all right, well, let's take results for a particular search query that we know are good because they rank well in Google. And we're kind of going to blend those search results with the massive language model and train them, train an algorithm or train a model that speaks SEO. Um, so that's essentially the result is it's a modified version of these language models that we train for a particular search query 
to produce content in the style of results that Google has already deemed suitable. Uh, and so we have run a couple of studies with uh, partner organizations and we you know, ran a, a field study with them where we put human content as well as our machine generated content online. I should mention that one of the keys is we are not producing production ready content. We are producing first draft content. Okay. And that's a big distinction when it comes to what AI is capable of doing today, right? AI doesn't know your brand, right? It doesn't know what your brand personality or your brand voice is that you're striving for. If you want to make sure that the content that is produced by the AI is consistent with the other content, a human being needs to look it over. Um, another case uh, or another example of why a human being needs to look it over is for factual accuracy. Yeah. You know, think of this as a parrot. The parrot doesn't know what it's saying. It's just kind of spitting out content. So it can put things together that look like saying, oh, well, this medical study was done. Well, the reason it mentions medical studies is because there's a medical study in the data that it was trained on. But that medical study that the machine talks about may not have actually been conducted or quotes that it attributes to people. Well, not only might those quotes not be coming from those people, those supposed people may not actually exist. And so that's why we say this is, you know, it's going to get you out of the starting blocks. It's a really good first draft. And the human edits applied to our first draft content dramatically outperformed SEO experts. Wow. You know, from a cost reduction standpoint, yeah, we have a forthcoming uh, peer-reviewed paper on this, but we're talking about like a 90% reduction in production costs because instead of a writer needing to do the research, putting it, you know, a couple of hours of research and then writing this content, we can produce the content in about five minutes and a writer maybe needs half an hour to edit that content. Wow. So big, big potential cost savings to companies. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just going to say that's great because not only are you saving employees, workers time, but you're still needing that human touch. So anyone's fear of, you know, losing someone, not necessarily someone losing their job, but, you know, their job not being significant anymore, it's still necessary. It's just to a different capacity. Exactly. I think it's the, the jobs. Yeah, we've applied it to SEO purposes. Um, the work that we're doing now is we're going to be looking at applying it to social media, to paid advertising. The job for cre the creative side of marketing, the machines aren't coming to replace you, but your job is going to be affected, right? Your job is going to change uh, because you're going to focus on the parts that the machine can't do, right? Like, you know, the machine... Currently, we're working on this, that the machine currently can't bring in your brand voice, right? That's not done yet. Um, I would say we're probably a year, you know, we're working on that project. I, hopefully within the next year, we have that one done. But, you know, the factual accuracy, somebody's got to do it. You know, people know their industry better than the machine, right? Right now, all we're saying is, you give us a whole bunch of text and we can train, the machine will be able to create 
text for you, but it still needs to go past human eyes before it's ready for prime time. And you know, this is something that kind of ties in with what we were talking about with regards to social media. Um, yeah, I've been having some conversations with folks who work on misinformation and understanding how it spreads. And they're convinced that these language models are being used by the, by the individuals who choose to spread misinformation. And that's one of the things they're worried about because the availability of these types of tools can dramatically increase the amount of content that these, uh, thir- you know, these actors are able to put out on social media. Oh, wow. That's somewhat scary. Yeah. So it's one of those things where it's like really cool capabilities in terms of, you know, I've seen applications like, you know, the SEO applications we've done. Um, I saw one where it's, this is get it sounds a little bit creepy, but I can understand the use case of making, making a chatbot in the style of a deceased loved one you know, like kind of a digital record of your conversation with them, you could make a chatbot that speaks in their style. And so I can, it's a little weird to think about, but I could see a role for that perhaps in the grieving process or perhaps with someone who has mental illness. Um, So I think that's kind of, yeah, I think there's concern there, but potential application that could help people. Um, I saw another application of these language models where they described COVID to the to the computer. They said in 2020, there was a pandemic caused by the coronavirus and it originated in Wuhan, China. And what they did, what they did is really clever. They said, we wanted to know what kind of mutation to expect in the virus. So they said, you know, a mutation occurred, and then they asked the computer to generate text based on that prompt. It described the Delta variant. Wow. So that's wild. And then they also asked, how would governments respond to this? And it described how some governments reacted to the pandemic. So there's the potential to use these language models, which are all based on history, right? It's all based on what's happened before. It's all based on the text that we feed into it. So these are not, I mean, I grew, I'll date myself. I grew up with, you know, Terminator and the Matrix. And so my, when people say to me, AI, I think Skynet and I think, you know, the the machines are coming (laughs) to take over. Yeah, the last TV, you know, those of you know the TV show Person of Interest, right? uh, Great TV show. Um, Anyone who's interested in kind of the ethical side of AI, I would encourage watching it on Netflix or wherever you can see it. But we're not talking about a artificial general intelligence, right? We're not talking about me walking down the street and having a casual conversation with a robot that's walking around with its own true own personality that is fully organic. That's not what we're talking about with these language models. It's all based on here, take the documents that we've seen, medical studies that have been done, lab reports, feed all of that into a computer and you know, let it learn from that. Yeah. So there are tre- there's tremendous opportunity about what could be done with these language models and you know, pandemic preparedness is one thing that's being talked about. Now, that's just on the text side. There are also models that are out there to create images. There's a demo that I saw, this was a couple of years ago, where if you take a doodle from like what one of my kids would draw and bring home that we might put up on the refrigerator, what it does is because this model has been trained based on 
a massive number of works of art, it takes kind of the broad, literally the broad strokes from that doodle and turns it into the style of a masterpiece that might be hanging in a museum. And so you can still, you can see the relation between the doodle and the computer generated piece, but it, they, you say, okay, here's a tree, but instead of a, the tree being, well, here's a, a stick and a circle on top of it, it's a fully fleshed out tree that looks like, you know, a masterpiece. And so it, you know, the, the creation of visuals is something we're seeing now the latest model that I saw from OpenAI, they called uh, Dali, um, a play on Salvador Dali, but also the robot Wally um, mm -hmm. from the movie. And what you do is based on a text input, it produces a visual. Um, so one of my favorite demos that I use that, from their website is a, an armchair or a coffee table in the style of Pikachu. Oh, wow. It completely generates like a dozen variants, none of which actually exist. That's, that's so cool. And so this, is, this wow. is the stuff that I think the future of the creative side of marketing. Now, imagine these tools in the hands of marketers where you give me a sketch and we can have a full-blown print advertisement. I know a... Um, a friend who uh, works at an ad agency where one of their clients wanted them to, to produce a commercial. And they said, okay, well, let's try using this to write the entire script of the commercial. And the, you know, pa the pandemic hit, they never aired it, but the ability to, for marketers to more efficiently create original content. Again, none of this is going to say that marketers are out of a job that I've replaced the Mad Men entirely with an AI, but we can, yeah. I, if I can get you 50% of the way there, if I can say, instead of this taking three months, we can get this done in three weeks, right? That's a big savings to the agency. And that saving is going to get passed on to their clients. Absolutely. And it's saving time for the marketers and can focus on either other projects or grow in. Exactly. Yeah. Prof I was going to say professionally grow as well. Yeah, so I think it, all of this has, I think marketing is going to be to look very different a couple of years from now as AI takes on broader adoption on the with regards to the creation of marketing content. And I it's going to be a cat and mouse game because you know it's okay, somebody uses an AI to create new content that has been engineered to perform as good as possible. Well, what happens once everyone's using that kind of AI, right? We, the marketing needs to differentiate somehow. So the AIs are gonna be, aren't going to need to be retrained, but until that happens, that's, what, that's the role that today's marketers need to prepare themselves for is how do I differentiate? Uh, you know, that, that's, been the, that's always been part of the role of marketers is what differentiates brand A from brand B? Well, that's going, it's not going to be, it's not going to be able to say it's just our content because anyone's going to be able to produce very good content. So they're going to need to stick to find some other way of communicating the, those differentiators to the public. Right. So I just have one final question that I would love to get your input on and 
figure out what's going on in the future for you. But, you know, you've had so many fun projects and interesting research that you've De- well, project you develop, but research that you've learned throughout the past couple of years. Do you have anything coming up in the future that you can share or are willing to share before I hop off of this call with you? Sure. So one of the spaces that I'm, you know, um, that I see a lot of potential in is location-based marketing. Uh, you know, t- the cell phone is the single best data collection device that was imaginable. Uh, and even though Apple has put, you know, put in their privacy opt out, unless you, unless you want to go completely off the grid, you're going to allow for data to be collected about you. Well, that location data, there's so much that can be learned about you from that data. Um, one of the projects that we're wrapping up is we used location data to construct a social network pretty much of an entire metro area during COVID. And so what we looked at was how people reacted to increased number of cases in terms of their socialization behavior. Well, once you have that social network, you know, for example, marketers can say, okay, who is the influential person within that network? Who's the, you know, not the online influencers that we're used to talking about, but who are the real world influencers that shape where their offline network chooses to go? Um, so I think, yeah, that, that's a stream of work that I think it has a, a lot of potential for marketers to be able to leverage. Um, and the company that I work with there, you know, when I talked with them you know, recently, what they said was you know, kind of the spark for them in starting this business was to make kind of these really powerful marketing tools. And these guys had worked for like a decade at big CPG companies. And, but what they wanted to do was make powerful data-driven marketing tools available to all businesses, right? It was that it shouldn't just be your Fortune 500 who have access to these types of tools to do a better job of marketing. It should be the small and medium-sized businesses. And so I think that's one of the things that I'm excited about in terms of what we're doing with the SEO project and what we hope to do with the location uh, marketing project is to make it such that the price point is such that your local retailers, your mom and pop shops that are doing their own marketing. They don't have an agency because they don't have the budget to hire an agency. Well, can we provide them with tools where enough of the work has been automated so that they're able to leverage them and grow their businesses? And give them a chance too. I know they had such a hard time during the lockdown during the pandemic and a lot of them are still struggling. Yeah. And so if we can say, hey, yeah, we're not going to guarantee anyone's success, but, you know, instead of saying it's going to be, you know, X hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars for you to get SEO content. All right. Well, what if we can bring that price down substantially and say, all right, the, your, your local businesses can afford to cre- you know, put in half an hour to edit the content and get it up online. And hopefully that's going to drive some more business for them. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, David. This was such a fun and interesting conversation. I hope I can convince you to come back soon. And hopefully you will be able to join us in person one of these months because I know I feel like we talk about COVID constantly, but it it will be nice when we can get you in person. Oh, that'll be great. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks a lot, Katie. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to Millennium Live to listen and learn on life and leadership.